We welcome you into another edition of Talking Isles, the New York Islanders' official interview-based podcast. I'm Greg Picker, the Islanders' radio color commentator, joined by the team's director of digital, Corey Wright. Corey, this week we bring on Tom Chorsky. 596 games in the NHL, only 84 of those with the Islanders, but plenty of Islander connections throughout his entire career. Tom Chorsky played for the Islanders in the 1997-1998 season, so he was playing with the likes of Zidane Chara, Ziggy Palfi. He was actually a roommate with Zidane Chara early in his career on the road, so some fun stories there, but also had a lot of other Islander connections during his stops, played for Lou Lamorello in New Jersey, played with Alexi Ashen in Ottawa, among others, so kind of fun to just, you know, kind of pick and choose some Islander stories from different eras and different players, but Tom Chorsky, a pretty interesting guy. So happy to have him on the pod. We will take it away with Tom Chorsky. And Tom Chorsky, who scored on Hatchet last night. Enjoy it. He scores! Three to two, Colorado. Time to welcome in Tom Chorsky to the Talking Isles podcast. And, and Tom, we... Like to go back pre-NHL days, pre-NCAA days, even for you, because you were the first ever Minnesota Mr. Hockey, named the best high school player in the state in 1985. How big of a deal was that, not only being named that player, but was there a big story going into that season of, oh, there's this new award this year, and you know I have a chance to win it. I'm sure I have some some teammates that are looking to win this award. Was this something that was talked about in Minnesota? Because we still talk about it to this day, whoever the Minnesota Minister Hockey is, usually going into the NHL draft. Yeah, I think you have a couple of them uh, on your team there uh, in, in New York. You know, I don't remember going into the season, you know, knowing about it, but uh, as the season progressed – you know, mid-season, I think that this is when the conversation starts happening. You know, then it starts to be became a little bit of a thing. And then, you know, by the end of it, my my lasting memories are that uh, Herb Brooks was the guest speaker, you know, which was not long after the miracle on ice had happened. And so that was a big deal. And John Mariucci, another kind of godfather of hockey in Minnesota, was uh, at the head table. And so that was... Uh, that was an exciting time for me. Um, and, and there was only five finalists. Uh, now there's 10, which I think makes sense. But uh, yeah, the thing has grown to uh, be a, a pretty, you know, prestigious award. Of course, it, you know, when you're that young, if, if you're up for the award, you probably have, you know, future aspirations and future plans to, to go, uh, to go higher and, and farther in the game. So, and it's an individual award. So, you know, at the time, I think you just are, honored but you you give your teammates and your coaches and your parents and your and your uh you know your family all all the uh, accolades to go along with it but then when the game's over and, and you're old and uh gray like me you, you kind of look back and really appreciate it well we're gonna try to hit a lot of islander connections here and you know growing up in minnesota we're gonna ask you you're a big north stars fan and of course you know the islanders and north stars play in that stanley cup final in 1981 so if you were a north stars fan like how much of an impact did that series have on you as a teenager? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I guess I was a little bit of a North Stars fan, but not a only a North, North Stars fan. I was a kind of a hockey fan, and the old Norris, you know, division was a was a fun division to watch. When I was a kid, you know, watching hockey in the seventies and and eighties, you know, it was still pretty rough and tumble league, a lot of fights, uh, some bench clearing brawls, and things like that, but. It was also during the time when the Islanders, you know, had their dynasty. And so, 
you know, I remember that. And, and I remember Mike Bossy, you know, stands out and, and all of them, Clark Gillies and Nystrom and Billy Smith. And, you know, we had a couple Minnesotans that were uh, part of that team as well. Like Langevin was on that team and um, Lauren Henning was another guy. So as I got a little bit older and those guys were around, it was kind of fun for me to get to meet them after they were, you know, part of that four-year dynasty and that run. So I was an NHL fan, not just a North Stars fan, but I remember that that final series. And so do the, so do the older North star guys that uh, I see now and then. You're from the twin cities area and you end up playing three years at the university of Minnesota being from right around Minneapolis. Was that really the only option for you to go play your college hockey for the Gophers? Or did you even look outside that area? Yeah. Um, good question. You know, at the time the Gophers were still a pretty big deal. They had won national championships in the seventies, late seventies. Herb Brooks took them to one in 79 um, I grew up going over and watching them play. They were sort of Minnesota's team, primarily made up of, at least when I was growing up, all Minnesotans. There was kind of a philosophy that the founders and, and of, of the program wanted to keep it very Minnesota-centric. And some of the other schools around us, like UMD at the time, was they were taking some Canadians. North Dakota took Canadians. Even Wisconsin, you know, was taking Canadians. And so guys like Herb Brooks and John Mariucci, they wanted to keep Minnesota very, keeping as many spots and opportunities for Minnesotans. So I was heavily, I was heavily influenced by it and was probably always going to be a gopher. I had gotten close to UMD, uh, my teammate and, and really good friend, Chris May, his older brother, Dan, went to our high school and he was playing for the Bulldogs. And uh, so we would go up and watch him play. Another former uh, Islander had been there, Tom Curvers, who sadly passed away recently. But um, so I was pretty close to UMD too. I did visit Yale and uh, Harvard was recruiting me. I, I had a hard time envisioning myself going out East at that time, um, which is kind of funny now because we have two kids that now go to college out East and uh, play hockey out there. So I don't know what it was, but I, I couldn't really see it or feel it. I wanted to be a gopher and I had the opportunity. So that's, I jumped at it. Well, I think it worked out pretty well considering you were a first round pick by the Montreal Canadiens in 1985. I mean, that's only a couple of picks behind. I think Derek King was selected by the Islanders just ahead there. Now, what were your expectations going into the draft? And then also, you know, the draft now is very different from the draft then. So love to hear guys' draft day stories because I think Bobby Nystrom was at work when he found out, you know, where were you when you found out? What was that whole day like for you? Yeah, I think I was mowing the lawn. It was a, it was a Saturday and, uh, I had been, I had interviewed with a few teams and, and scouts would come around and back then, for whatever reason, they, they had golf shirts and they would give you a golf shirt. Now you can't, I don't think you, well, maybe you can now with um, name, image and likeness, but back then, you know, it was, I don't know if it was a violation, but they'd give you a golf shirt. So I had golf shirts from, I don't know, four or five pro teams that I thought that was pretty cool, but I was ranked. I mean, it kept coming down the more and more, but I think around draft day, I was still in the, like in the twenties, upper twenties. And so I didn't anticipate going um, in the first round and I didn't anticipate going that high, but I did know I was going to get drafted. And so I was kind of hanging around the house and the phone rang and it was a reporter actually beat, uh, they beat the club to the punch. And I got a call from a reporter saying I had just been drafted by Montreal the draft was in Montreal that year and, you know, to be drafted by Montreal back then, you know, and even today, it's kind of one of those iconic teams. It was a pretty, pretty daunting 
thing. I was, it was, I was exciting, but it caught me off guard and um, kind of immediately put some pressure on me. Um, they had had two picks actually in the first round. They took a player named Josie Charbonneau at number eight um, and then me at 16. And then one of my teammates, Todd Richards, right after that in the second, early second round. But uh, you know, as it, for a while there was a lot of pressure. I'll say that. And then when I got to Montreal, finally, after my college career, I felt the pressure again, wearing, you know, wearing that first round pick label um, in Montreal. You know, there's so many Hall of Fame players and legends, and sometimes they'd be at the building and you just kind of almost didn't feel like you were worthy. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a lot to carry around a little bit, but, you know, in hindsight, you know, proud that I played there, proud that I was able to wear the sweater, played in the old forum, scored my first goal there. Um, you know, did did enough good things there before uh, before being traded to New Jersey that uh, I'm honored that they picked me. Now, in the 1987-88 season, if you will, you were a part of, of the U.S. Olympic squad that was training for the 1988 Calgary Games. And I know you ended up being one of the last cuts, so you didn't actually get to participate in the 88 games, but that entire year, did you take a, a lot from that and, and help you establish yourself once you made it to the NHL and, and really take a lot out of that season? Yeah, I really did. Um, it was great to make that national team and we toured around playing NHL teams in the fall, went over and played some European teams in Sweden and Finns uh, overseas and then came back and we were playing the Canadian national team on a tour and we were playing us colleges. And it was, it was a year that I, I think I, you know, I matured, I played at a higher level of hockey. I was the last player cut from the team went back, but I went back for that last year with um, both a lot of confidence and a lot of determination. You know, I think anytime you get cut from a team like that, or just get cut and you, you know, you want to go back and prove that, uh, that prove people wrong. Um, I felt like I, I still knew I was going to have a pro career. So I wanted, I was motivated. I got off to a great start my last year at the, at the university um, and then suffered a shoulder injury and missed about six weeks. So that's around, I think I missed, you know, 11 or 12 games or something like that, but you know, it was a, it was, it was a good year for me to go back and play with a lot of confidence and it did get me ready for, for going off to the um, pros after that. Well, after a couple of years in Montreal, you know, you're acquired by Lou Lamorello and the New Jersey Devils in a deal that included uh, Kirk Muller. And because we want to find those Islander connections, I mean, Lou Lamorello obviously has become, you know, he's been the general manager here for the past five or six seasons. And, you know, we love getting the Lou story. So just what was your kind of first interactions with Lou like, and what was it like playing for a Lou Lamorello team back in Jersey in the nineties? Yeah, probably not much different than it is playing for a Lou team now. Um, you know, what, one thing about Lou is, you know, he's uh, consistent. He's, he's got some very strong principles and beliefs in the way things uh, should be done. And my, you know, some of my first memories, you know, at first I, I was kind of grateful and appreciated that they traded for me. Um, it gave me a fresh start and, and things really took off for me when I got to New Jersey. So I, I appreciated that. I remember the first time I really went in to meet with them was early on after, uh, after a handful of games, um, I hadn't been told yet to get an apartment and I had, had gotten off to a good start points wise and was playing, you know, quite a bit of minutes every night. And I finally went in and it's a little intimidating to, to go ask him if it was okay for me to get an apartment. 
um, because he's an intimidating guy that way. But, uh, you know, he, he kind of thought about it and, and said that, uh, well, the, I, he implied anyway that there was no guarantee prior to me getting there that, you know, I was going to stay with the team. But uh, he said, no, you've done a good job. You can get an apartment. And, and then after that, you know, lose a round, but he's not, he's not interacting face to face too much. We had a, you know, as you know, we went on pretty quickly in, in four years, we won a Stanley cup four years after I got there. And, you know, we had great leadership and Scott Stevens and Ken Danico and John McLean and Bruce driver and guys like that. And, and, and then we had a great coach, you know, some great coaching staffs too, Larry Robinson and Jacques Lemaire. And um, so we just had a really good thing going there. And with the way Lou likes things done and the way Jacques Lemaire liked things done and the way Scott Stevens kind of managed the team, you know, as a, as a, as a leader, uh, we, we were, we were, we were a good team and we just kind of operated the way Lou wanted us to. You arrived in New Jersey in the fall of 1991. I think everybody listening to this podcast knows the devils went on to the Eastern conference final game seven and 94. And then as you mentioned, win the cup in 95, how quickly did you realize that this could be a cup caliber team in the coming years in New Jersey? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I was, I was kind of, I was paying attention to the way things were going and we were, we kept adding pieces and players, you know, Billy Guerin arrived from Boston college and Brian Rolston kind of came on the scene and we had this Niedermeyer who everyone was saying was going to be, you know, a future hall of famer and, and, and Brodeur, same thing, young, young, but um, full of potential. And then, you know, you had guys, Scott Stevens, um, Randy McKay, myself came in and, um, you know, and then I think in 94, that's when Jacques Lemaire and Larry Robinson got there and immediately had a huge impact. You know, he kind of had the right pieces on, on the roster. Claude Lemieux was, was good. Stefan Riche was, you know, was a ton of talent and we just playing as a team, playing the way Jacques wanted us to play. Um, and we got to game seven against the Rangers and, uh, lost in, double overtime, I think, and uh, the Stefan Mateau goal. And uh, so, you know, I think we left that season feeling like, okay, we got something good here. We're obviously, we're, we're a, a shot away from getting to the finals. And that year it was against uh, Vancouver. Vancouver had already wrapped up the West Western Conference. And I think, you know, I think we felt like we could have won that one had we gotten there. And then fortunately the next year uh, we were able to, you know, go all, go all the way and, and get it done. Well, in, in the lead up to 1995, there was the lockout. So the year you guys won the cup, it was only a 48 game season. And I saw you spent a little bit of time playing in Italy during yeah. the lockout. What led you to play there? And what was it like getting to play in, uh, in looked like in Northern Italy and in, in some beautiful mountainous scenery? Yeah. Well, you know, I was in Milan. Um, I had a, good friend Mike DeAngelis who had played at UMD actually I played against him and then I got to know him in the in the summer months in Minneapolis we kind of used to pal around when we were single and and younger and you know go on the boat in the lake and stuff like that but uh we were practicing you know on our own in New Jersey and he called me and he said hey I think I think I can get you over on our team if you want to come over I thought what the heck that that sounds good and you know at the time at first, you know, it was pretty early on in the fall. Uh, after a few months, we hadn't quite settled yet, or maybe, you know, uh, maybe it was more like six weeks or something. But I think a few more players had gone over, and then it started to be kind of frowned upon. Like you're kind of, even though you're not crossing the picket lines per se to go in and play for 
you know, the devils, some players that weren't doing it felt like, you know, players are over there and they're playing and they're, you know, we weren't making much money, but um, it was fun. I will say that it was, it was a great little experience. There were some other NHL Sergio Momesso came over and was on uh, the team I was on. Uh, there was another team in Milan. So we had these big rivalry games, uh, you know, and back then the, the fans in the hockey rink were a lot like the fans that you see at soccer matches, right? They're shooting off smoke bombs and waving flags and singing songs and, and, and smoking in the building. And um, so it was, it was fun. It was a great experience to go over there and see Milan. And um, I remember my wife, uh, she was my girlfriend at the time or fiance, but uh, you know, she, she came over and she went to Florence and we went to Venice and, you know, we, yeah, a couple of days off, you could just jump on a train and go places. So it was a great experience. And then, but was very happy when uh, the work stoppage got settled and was able to get back to business in the NHL. You know, looking ahead and again, we keep looking at these Islander connections and, you know, you played with the Ottawa Senators for a couple of seasons and that would have been alongside Alexi Yashin, who of course later captained the Islanders. And, you know, I know Alexi's time in Ottawa may have been a little turbulent in those years you were there, but just what were your, you know, impressions of Alexi, the player, because, you know, obviously he was a pretty skilled guy, even though there was a, some of the contract baggage, I suppose, with it. Yeah, he was a really skilled player. Um, he was also pretty young. Um, and and so, yeah, he was sort of handed this big contract and then they put the C on him. And, and frankly, he was not captain material at that time. Um, he really didn't know how to lead. Um, and I don't think he really wanted it, but you know, there was a phase there where, you know, that's just something that sometimes teams did with the, the highest paid player, the most skilled player, uh, and they, they made him a captain. And so uh, I think that caused, you know, that caused some, a little bit of turbulence, if you want to call it that, um, you know, the media, Canadian media too, is, is not easy. Um, even though we were, you know, relatively new startup club, they they were under the spotlight and and in Canada and in Ottawa the the media was also a factor so you know it was just early on in the, in the organization's you know new history second time around but uh, they um, they were just kind of going through you know a lot of ups and downs and trying to figure things out um, and then he he had tons of skill right we could see but he wanted to carry the puck all the time didn't always want to pass it and kind of thought I think he thought that was his job you know, was to just kind of try and do it all because he really didn't under, I don't think he knew, you know, how to lead. He was so young and, and experienced that way. Well, you helped the senators make the playoffs for the first time in the modern history of Ottawa in 1997. And then one thing I noticed when you went from team to team, it didn't typically happen over the summer. It seemed to happen right around training camp or <laughs> in the lead up to the season. So when you got traded to New Jersey, September 20th, when you went from the senators or from from the senators to the Islanders, it was in September. Same thing when you went from the Devils to the Senators, it was right at the beginning of the season. So how strange was that, and how difficult was it to try to get acclimated to a new team when it's not as if you had okay three months to get ready like most guys who sign in the middle of summer? Yeah, you know it's funny. I've never really thought of it that way, um, but they were training camp deals. You know, I think. I was probably one of those players that um, teams, you know, they liked, they appreciated, um, you know, the, the, the value that I brought or, the, you know, the, the style I played is pretty versatile, had some offense. I could, I could, you know, I 
in New Jersey. I was kind of a shutdown winger under Jacques' uh, system. But, you know, I, I was probably that bubble player in a couple different situations where they had to make a decision if they were going to stick with me or go with a younger guy. And, you know, and I think that's kind of how I felt like it happened in New Jersey. They, they ended up having some younger forwards like Brian Rolston, like Billy Guerin. You know, Sergey Breland was coming on and, you know, they, they had to find ice time for those guys. So I think that's what happened there um, in Ottawa there was a change in management. So they were going to go, you know, some different directions. And uh, Rick bonus is a connection too, between uh, the Islanders and, and Ottawa and Rick. Uh, I think he appreciated me and liked me. So, you know, he got me to Ottawa um, him and, and um, I think Pierre Maguire, it was another guy who I talked to over the years. And in fact, our sons play college hockey together. So we still remain friends and in contact, but uh Rick got me down to the Islanders when uh, there was a change in management in Ottawa. Um, and then from the Islanders, that change happened at the same time. I remember, and that was a, that was a Mike Milbury deal. Like he just decided on the morning of that he wanted to make a change, I think. So um, that's when I ended up in uh, Washington, but uh, yeah, I don't know why it always happened in the fall. I, it would have been, it would have been a little bit better if, if I could have just went to a team in the fall and stayed there, but we were packing up our bags in September and relocating. All right. So you get acquired by the Islanders and you have just narrowly missed the fisherman era, but obviously I'm sure the Islanders at that point were not perhaps the most attractive destination. So, you know, what were your thoughts when you finally get traded to the Islanders who were maybe in a little bit of dysfunction at that point? Yeah, you know, you never know the the level of dysfunction before you get there. I actually looked forward to it, you know, because if in Ottawa, if they didn't want me there, then I was happy to go somewhere, you know, Rick Bonus calls and says, hey, we're, 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 we're grabbing you again. And, you know, you're going to play. And I knew I was going to play, got there. You know, we had, a, we had a good team of at least closeness. I mean, we had good friendships, good relationships young, pretty young. I was starting to be older compared to guys like Brian McCabe and Brian Berard and things like that. But Brian Smolinski um, became a good friend and all of our wives were good friends. And, you know, I'd been in New Jersey, so a little different than Long Island, but not too different. It's tri-state area. And, you know, you got to get used to the traffic and you can still go into New York city, uh, you know, on some downtime. So um, I always looked on the positive side of getting there and um, I love the Islanders um, history. Like I said, you don't know that you're going into a, a tumultuous situation where things are um, a little chaotic behind the scenes, but um, you know, the, and then the fishermen, the fishermen thing was that uh, it was just when I was out there the, on last Saturday at the game and met you guys and talked to you guys a little bit, I was kind of trying to figure out that, you know, we wear the fisherman's Jersey, but we changed the emblem. So we, you know, we had the, historic famous iconic islanders emblem which was great but they they weren't allowed to change the jerseys immediately so they had to get approval and and from the league and they weren't able to get that for the for that season apparently or at least for part the time being and so yeah i didn't didn't wear the gordon's fisherman but guys wear, people wear that now right like now it's almost so bad it's good they people love it we brought them back last yeah. year and they were fly i mean they're flying off the shelves but yeah. even then, just looking at some of the jerseys you got you played in in the late '90s, I'm seeing the Capitol Screaming Eagle. There was the Pittsburgh rebrand. You got some beauties there. Ooh, yeah, it was ugly. It was kind of ugly. You know, the whoever you know, whatever 
that fad was um, that everyone was sort of copycatting. Uh, it, you're right. The, the the Penguins one that was redone was not was not good. I mean, they took all these iconic, you know, logos and emblems and butchered them. Frankly, yeah, the Screaming Eagle was bad. I I think I had some suspect one in Calgary too. But uh, yeah, you guys are pointing out some funny things that uh, <laughs> that, that happened to my career. Well, we understand during part of the season that you played with the Islanders, you would have had a 20-year-old Zdeno Chara as a roommate. What was it like rooming with a 20-year-old Big Z? Well, you know, first of all, he was six at 6'9 at that time. You know, I don't think there was anyone 6'9. Um, you know, there had probably been some 6'6 and some big, big guys, but uh, not 6'9. And he was young and, and inexperienced, but he was – he was still a, you know, he was such a nice, nice kid, nice young man then. And he obviously became a, just a tremendous leader and, and a champion and, and had so much success um, and, and still is doing some amazing things. I saw the other day that he's, he runs marathons. He ran both, I think, Boston and New York and, and some really uh, good times. He's a, he's a specimen of a trainer. Um, but, you know, so yeah, I was just kind of trying to help him um, navigate this new world he was in, you know, language barriers a little bit, although he, he spoke, I don't remember him, you know, needing too much help. Um, but just, you know, I tried sharing whatever knowledge or information I had gained from my years already in the league. You know, that's one of the, one of the great things I, I'm not in locker rooms anymore these days, but, um, you know, back then the, the veterans, and I think I'm sure they still do the veterans really helped the young guys and, and know how to mentor them and guide them a little bit. And they, you can kind of see when, you know, I always took a, a liking to European players too, that, you know, like there could be a language barrier. I'd make sure they understood, you know, what was going on, what the drill was, what the coach had said in between periods or what the coach said after the game and spend time with them. And cause you know, some of the words in the English language have, have are double entendres or they mean certain things or slang is, is hard. And so, I, I took some pride in, in helping young European players get acclimated. I did it with Daniel Alfredson in, in Ottawa as well. And it wasn't just me, you know, there's, there's other guys that were, were that way too, but it, it was impressive. You know, you, you see a guy like that, with like, like Z and you just kind of wonder, you know, what's going to become of this guy, you know, is he just going to be a, a fighter or, you know, is he going to figure it out? And, and he still was, he still was figuring his body out. He was figuring out his game and, but he really, uh, he really mastered, mastered the NHL and became uh, uh, just a tremendous player and tremendous person. You weren't kidding about the good marathon time. He ran the New York marathon three hours, 19 minutes. It's a seven thirty-seven pace, which is pretty wild. But on the topic of European players, Ziggy Palfi, and Greg and I have been with the team a long time. I think we're both on, you know, season 11 or 12. And we have not seen Ziggy Palfi at all. He is like the white whale. So anytime, any chance we get to actually hear some insights about Ziggy or just any stories about him, I mean, what are your memories of playing with Ziggy? Well, really talented, really skilled. Um, he'd, be, he'd been fun to watch in today's game. He was able to, I mean, he could wheel around the rink, had a great shot, just to propensity to score goals was kind of carefree. He was a carefree kid. Didn't seem to have a care in the world, you know, pretty, pretty smiley, you know, and we weren't winning a lot of games. And like you said, there was some, some tumultuous times, 
it didn't seem to bother him. You know, he, he just went around, he just went about his business and, you know, I would, I, I could have used a little bit of his carefreeness, I suppose, you know, I was I felt a little more responsible for things and worried about things. And he didn't seem to worry about that, but, you know, you can just look, look at his numbers that he put up. He could, he could score. And again, like I said, he'd be a fun player to watch. I'm trying to think of a player maybe to compare him to and, you know, in, in this era, but um, he would have been, you know, over hundred point guy because of no slashing, no hooking, no obstruction, uh, good skater, you know, good shooter, just a point getter. So yeah, I guess, you know, to wrap it up, he was carefree, had fun, smiling, scored a lot of points. Um, and uh, I think collected a lot of bonus money. <laughs> 596 games in your NHL career, one penalty shot. And it came with the Islanders on a pretty noteworthy goaltender. Can you take us through that day? Yeah, I remember that one because um, I had played with Patrick Waugh and, and we were now Patrick was in Colorado, um, but had played with him in Montreal and um, knew what a competitor he was. And actually toot my horn a little bit the night before I had a breakaway in Buffalo shorthanded and scored against Hashik. Um, and so then I, we were killing a penalty again at home that night and Patrick tried to poke check the puck and his stick slipped out of his hand, but not very far, only probably only six, 12 inches from his, from his crease. Um, but they called him for, for kind of throwing his stick and, and losing grip of it. So I got that penalty shot. I think I felt, I felt pretty confident cause I had scored that night before and, you know, I had in my mind what I was going to do. And I think he was pretty, I, I, I know because of what happened afterwards, he was, he was so rattled and mad that I'm not sure he was fully focused yet on, on, you know, I think I made a pretty good shot. I came down kind of fading from my right side to the left. I'm a right shot. Um, I got him to start to leave the post or lean, lean to his right. And, and then I shot it to his left side, upper corner, just got it over his, his glove. He shot the puck out of the out of the net, like towards the boards or towards the ref. And he was so mad because, you know, he didn't even in practice playing against him in practice. If you scored, he would immediately turn around and, and get the puck out. Like after a drill, there were no pucks in his net. And he didn't let he didn't let many in because he's so good. And Marty Brodeur was the same way. Like those guys didn't want any pucks in the net after a drill because they didn't want anyone to know like that they had let in whatever it was four or five or six or six. so um i just remember yeah it was cool i was nervous but it turned out great uh and you know it was one of the it was a highlight in my career and it was probably kind of a highlight uh for for us that season even it was kind of fun we had the chance to catch up with you the other night the islanders were hosting a military appreciation game and you know your work with the united heroes league is part of the reason you were in the building for that one so Maybe for the fans that don't know, just, you know, how'd you get involved with the UHL and what are you doing with them? Yeah, thanks. Um, United Heroes League is a nonprofit that supports military families, kids and dependents uh, to keep them active and keep them in sports. You know, we all know how important um, sports are for kids to, you know, to stay active and to stay connected to, you know, their peers or their classmates and their friends and, and um, you know, and sports are expensive. And when, if they have a, a parent or a guardian that's um, either deployed and they're down to one, you know, one mother or father at home or 
maybe their parent has returned from uh, service and and um, they haven't quite re-entered the workforce yet. And you know the pay that the average military um, personnel receives is is pretty modest. And so sports are expensive, and we try to keep military kids uh, in sports. My role is uh, VP of Development and Partnerships, and so we're uh, we're a growing organization. Our founder, Shane Udell, has done an amazing job over the 15 years in Minnesota. We've been mostly active in Minnesota, and it got started with some Minnesota Wild players that took an interest and wanted to help out Shane. And little by little, it's really grown into uh, some major events. We've got a big gala that we put on as a fundraiser. We've got a, a really nice, well, I guess, subscribed golf event. We've got an ice fishing event. And um, we've just recently opened up a new refrigerated rink um, on our property in Hastings. So Shane's vision is to grow this property that we have over 50 acres into a military um, centric uh, sports complex. So we partner with the Minnesota Twins and the Vikings and the Wild. Um, and I don't know exactly how much we've done with the Timberwolves, but all of these teams are, are willing to roll up their sleeves and get involved with us. And we do clinics for kids that play those sports. And they're going to get behind us and help us build this complex. And so we will have soccer field, football field, um, a little league diamond. We've got the hockey rink and we'll start hosting some big events there. So my role and my responsibility is going to be to go out and get some, um, you know, really strong and long lasting partnerships, sponsorships and, and some gifts. And, and we think we've got a great mission and a great story and we do really good work with these kids. 85% of the donations that we receive go back into our programming. And so kids can, military kids can um, request uh, equipment, sets of equipment um, and gear that, you know, if they want to play baseball, we can get them a glove. If they want to play hockey, we get them a set of gear. Uh, if they need cleats, you know, we can get them cleats, things like that. So it's a really good mission. It's a good story. We want it to get much bigger. And uh, we're, we're kind of just kicking off this next phase of United Heroes League to, to grow it even bigger. Well, it's fantastic. And, you know, know the organization's done some great work. So another team was definitely happy to be able to support uh, at the game against the Caps on Veterans Day. Before we let you go, looking back at your hockey DB, I mean, there was one that I would be remiss if we didn't ask about, you know, your final year uh, with the Houston Arrows. And not just because, you know, obviously Houston's kind of a hot topic when it comes to hockey these days, but Lane Lambert, Islanders head coach would have been on that team. So, you know, any memories of playing with Lane back in Houston? Yeah, a little bit. You know, we were both, we were probably the two older players on the team. I'm not exactly sure how old he is, but uh, I do remember him and I being the older guys. You know, he was another uh, high draft pick to the Detroit Red Wings. We were winding down our careers. So we had that in common, which is, is you know, it's a little bit of a tough place to be. You know, it's kind of coming to an end. And, uh, we're down there in the minors, but the weather was good. We enjoyed, uh, I think, playing that year. And and again, had some good teammates, had some good friendships. Um, couples all got along well and, and we had some fun. And, um, you know, I think it was just a, a, a swan song and, you know, he's going through it, his, his own in his mind and I'm going through mine, but uh, all these connections are meaningful, you know, when you look back and, um, and congratulations to everything he's gone on to do, because even though his obviously his playing career came to an end, uh, he was his coaching career was just starting. So, you know, honored to say I, I know him. We 
great guy and and uh we had we had as much fun as we could that last year Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to share the memories of not just your Islander days, but your entire hockey career and wonderful stuff you're doing these days again with the United Heroes League. Yeah, well, thanks. And thanks to all the fans that uh, were at that game. And, you know, we were beneficiary of um, part of the of the 50-50 um, raffle. And so we appreciate um, everything the Islanders uh, do for us. You know, it's been multiple years and we hope, you know, plan to be back. I'm going to try and do some things out in, in the Island with, uh, with some clinics. That's why I went out to, you know, connect with some more people. And so uh, hopefully I won't be a stranger to the, uh, to the Island and uh, we'll, we'll see you guys again. Well, thank you again for joining us on another edition of Talk at Isles. Please make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you might listen. You can follow us on Twitter. I am at Greg Picker here. And I am at Rightsway. You can follow all the latest info about the team on Twitter at NY Islanders and stay up to date on UBS Arena at ubsarena.com. A big thank you to our producer, Rachel Lusher, and to WRAQ at Hofstra University. And we'll see you next time on Talking Isles.